everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And today we have Dr. Peter Antevi with us. He is rejoining the show. Welcome back, Dr. Antevi. Hey, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. So, Dr. Antevi, we know that he's a uh, pediatric emergency physician in Florida. He is the medical director of over a million, is a million providers at this point, or is it just a million yeah. patients? Yeah, no, just the population here in Broward County, over a million people, and also in Palm Beach County. So, a couple million people that we look after in both counties. So, yeah. And whenever we have questions about uh, pediatric care or pediatric cardiac arrest, we know that Dr. Antevi is the guy to talk to. So, we're going to kind of start a uh, big picture and work down this to uh, more of the smaller stuff. So we've talked about pediatric cardiac arrest before uh, in the show. We've certainly talked to you, Dr. Antevi, about it, but we do want to kind of um, extrapolate a little bit more on the 2020 guidelines that have come out since Palace has been updated. So the big question we always ask is why, how are we doing, I guess, for pediatric cardiac arrest? And if we're not doing well, uh, why not? Yeah. Yeah. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. And as someone who's done it wrong, for a long time, and as someone who's been in the emergency department, accepting those patients who are getting CPR, maybe not the best CPR, things oftentimes were never done on scene. Now that we're 10 years, really now 11 years into kind of this change of mentality, we've seen a tremendous change in outcomes, and now those changes have been published. So there, there's really no one today who can argue that what we've known to be obvious is true, which is that if someone's in cardiac arrest, whether they're a zero or a hundred, they need to be resuscitated as soon as possible and with the highest quality possible. And that means if they're at the poolside, you stay at the poolside. If they're in the bedroom, you stay in the bedroom. And so from the outcomes perspective, it's a no brainer, right? From the uh, career perspective, it's a no-brainer because now we have people who are now, as their career is progressing, they're saying, wow, I know how to do that too, and I'm just as good as it when I do kids as when I do adults. And then the third arm of that whole thing that we're now just moving into this year more heavily is the family who needs to see high-performance CPR done on their child so that they know everything was done, that nothing was left uh, on the table, everything was put out there. So there's so many reasons beyond just the obvious of let's get more people back to life. And that's why that this is my mission. It's my goal. And, uh, you know, there's no one who can come to us today and say that we're wrong. Yeah. And the, the evidence is pretty much there. It's pretty shocking to see some of these cardiac arrest survival rates, uh, 3% for infant survival, 10.5 for children, about 15.8 for adolescents. There seems to be a real hesitation to want to do what we need to do. And it's, I, I think it's, we train people wrong that kids are different than adults and there's some kind of special thing that we have to have to deal with. I, I don't understand the effective filter, but I'm trying to. Well, well, you know, I, I'm going to, I, I love that you brought up those numbers. I'm, I'm going to drill down into those numbers because they are important. And again, these numbers come now right from the October issue of circulation, PALS 2020. And if you look at the actual data, it is true that the, uh, you know, so there's 20,000 kids who go into pediatric arrest every year. 7,000 of those occur out of hospital. The survival to hospital discharge is 11.4%. That's all comers now. 
But when you read the fine print, which is right below that, it says only half of those have a neurointax revival, so a CPC one or two. So th think about that. And so the number's around 5.3, 5.4%. And that number hasn't changed in decades, decades. And so here we are every year, a couple of years now, they're coming out with these new recommendations. And the numbers in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for kids hasn't changed at all. How could we even continue moving on without addressing the basics, which is let's just stop and treat them where we find them. Let's do exactly what we know how to do. And between the three of us and everyone listening, everyone knows pediatric, pediatric cardiac arrest and adult cardiac arrest, it, it's, you know, it's not that difficult, right? It's bag, 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 push, 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 drill, give epi, rinse, wash, and repeat again. And, you know, that's, that's exactly what you have to do. So, um, the, you know what, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute, but it turns out that it's, it's more psychological than it is medical. And I think that 80% of the ability we have to convert an agency's mindset, it has nothing to do with the medicine. It has to do with what's between their ears. We have to kind of throw the garbage out, if you will. That's how we get there. Just to unpack some of that stuff real quick, um, for those that are unsure, just talk about what the CPC scores actually mean mm. and why it's relevant. Um, yeah. One of the things is we've, we've discussed this in adult arrest a lot, where I think we focus on survival to discharge, which is great, but there's a, a niche in in medicine, and it's usually you know EBM type of people who are looking at more a neurologically intact survival. Um, just you know, it's yeah. it's more important that you're out and you're actually able to function, um, and you're not on a vent for the rest of your life. So just ex just expound yeah. on this scores a little bit and what that means. Yeah. So I think everyone needs, everyone listening needs to know that there's three outcomes we look at. Number one, do you survive enough to make it to the ER with a pulse? Okay, um, that's number one, and that's that's ROSC. Hey, great, we got a pulse, and then if you kind of use that as your ledger of I'm doing well. I mean, that's kind of like the rudimentary first step to do. We got a pulse back in 30% of our patients as, as a number. Um, but then the question is, how does that patient do? Do they actually get discharged from the hospital? So that's the second marker. Survival to hospital discharge. Check. That's awesome. However, when you take that group of people, let's say you have 100 people who were in cardiac arrest, they got into the hospital, into the ICU, they got to their rehab, and 100 of those people are now being discharged. Now the question is, where do those people go? Are they going, A, home to play golf and to play chess and to be with their grandkids? Or are they going to a facility with a trach and a G-tube, um, and they have many, many issues that they'll never get back to any quality of life? And so when you look at people with a good outcome who have a very good quality of life, you're looking at uh, a cerebral performance score, a CPC one or two. So if a CPC one are all of us, well, I, I hope all of us. <laughs> after, after coffee, after your energy right. in the morning. Exactly, exactly. I'm on my cup number three right now. Um, a CPC two, you, you, you need help with some of your activities of daily living. Once you get into the three and four, you're basically, um, maybe many people would say, you know what, I don't want to live that way. And so... When the American Heart Association said, hey, the survival for pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, or just for survival to cardiac arrest in general for kids is 11.4%, 
that sounds okay. Hey, it's over 10%, not so bad. But then when you read the fine print and it says only half of which uh, survive with a good neurologic outcome, CPC one or two, then you start to say to yourself, hey, you know what? That's not that good. It's not that good at all. Well, and that's it. I, I mentioned because it it's an important thing to bring up. I think in pre-hospital medicine, we tend to focus on getting a ROSC back. We tend to focus on you know patients surviving discharge, and it sounds great. But if you worked a cardiac arrest on a patient for let's say forty-five minutes, their survival of discharge may actually happen, but their quality of life may be significantly diminished. Um, and it's Correct. especially important with pediatric patients because aside from their you know, their cognitive ability or their actual ability to maintain their activities of daily living, there's a significant extra expense that goes along with caring for a chronically ill child, hmm. um, which is a whole other conversation. So it's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of things to take into consideration when you're actually working this arrest in the field. You know, you don't want to try to predict too far out in the future, but certainly with adult arrests, you know, if I have a 95 year old who weighs 90 pounds, who's been on hospice for a year, the consideration of working that arrest is certainly different than a nine-year-old, you know, who is a, a near drowning. So it's it's a lot extra to consider. Yes, um, yeah, and, and but but it's it's important to say that on that nine-year-old, if you wasted five minutes, ten minutes, you know, messing around, moving the kid because you wanted to go and take the kid to the hospital, um, it, it turns out that. It's, it's not just minutes, it's even seconds that can make a difference between that brain receiving enough oxygen to uh, end up having a normal outcome uh, versus having a really bad outcome. And so, you know, people need to understand, and this goes to the, to the bystanders, where in Florida, we're only at 28% bystander CPR, horrible. It goes to the dispatchers, you know, call takers, you want to call them, who are on the, the telecommunicators who are on the phone wondering whether or not this kid is really in cardiac arrest, is it a seizure, maybe I don't want to hurt the child, or you have to overcome that barrier. Because if you're at an agency today and you're getting on the scene and not one chest compression has been performed on that child, their chances of survival and a neuro-intact survival, that is, is you know significantly diminished. So it's not just your, your, your EMS system, but it's your, it's your, it's your call takers, your telecommunicators, and your bystanders. And so we, at least I now, am much more mature in my thinking in that, oh, it's not just the doctor. It's surely not the doctor. Um, it's not just EMS. It's bystander, dispatch, and EMS so that we can deliver to the doctor uh, at the hospital a patient who not only has a pulse, but actually has a chance of, of, of actually having a good outcome. And so for, for everyone listening today, you know, if you're a leader at your agency, it's simple. Go back and run the numbers over the last two years at your agency, find out how many pediatric cardiac arrests you've had, and then go find out how many of those kids are actually playing soccer today. Then you have your answer as to whether or not you're doing well, or whether or not you're doing mediocre, or whether or not you really need a lot of help and change the culture. And that's, that's a really important point, Doc. Um, I... I'm one of the people I've, I saw your uh, presentation at Refresh 2021. Uh, side note, we're not getting any money from them, but if you're not doing this, you're really missing out on some really good stuff. Um, and I got to say that your presentation about this was really eye-opening because 
you talked about the trajectory of arrests and we all know what a what an adult cardiac arrest looks like as paramedics and EMTs. We go in, we get chest compressions, somebody has an AED on, we go through the, you know, we get vascular access, we get our airway, we give our meds, and then we make a decision on where we're going or what we need mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. But a pediatric arrest is very, very different. Can you can you kind of just kind of gloss over that trajectory and why this is why you think that's kind of the problem here? Yeah, it's, it's a great, I appreciate you bringing this up. It, it starts, every arrest that, that anyone ever does, adult or pediatrics, starts way before you get to the scene. And and that that point was so kind of important when, when I finally learned it for myself of when are people making the decision to stay or leave the scene? And I, you know, I kind of joke that when my wife and I go to my mother-in-law's house, that I tell my wife before we get there, hey, we're leaving in 20 minutes. Um, so, and, <laughs> and, and, and I joke, I, I love my mother-in-law, but, it, but it's true. So when you're en route to that adult call and you hear cardiac arrest, not only do you know the dose, not only do you know the airway size, you know exactly who's gonna be position number one, two, and three. You're kind of looking forward to it. We're gonna move the guy between, he's between the toilet bowl and the wall. We're gonna move the furniture in the living room. We're gonna bring him out there. We're gonna set up shop. We're gonna to talk to the, to the spouse and let her know why we're staying. Um, and we're gonna do our thing. And, we, and if people are watching, even better because it looks really good at what we're doing. So knowing what you were gonna do before you got there is the unlock. In kids for many years, you didn't know what you were gonna do until you got there, right? Because we had to use a measuring tape, which is fine, right? But if you still have to use a measuring tape after you get there, well, guess who's looking at you? Mom and dad. And there's not a paramedic I know who wants to look bad in front of mom and dad and like they're doing math. And so the unlock was knowing what you're gonna do before you get there, meaning what's the epidose, that's simple. What's your eye gel size? That's what we use. And then if you're going to use any energy, what's the dose for, for defibrillation? Which again, we're rarely going to do in kids, but just the third thing to know. Then when you get there, everything else is the same, right? And, um, you know, the, the other important part of that is um, when you're a parent, and I, I hope no one has to ever go through this. And for those who have, my heart goes out to you. But if you're a parent and you're, waiting for 911 to get there. And when the crew gets there and no one looks at you in the eye and no one takes you to the side and say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're staying. Give us 10 more minutes. We do everything that the doctors do at the hospital. Stand right next to me. I'm gonna give you the updates as we move along. If you don't do any of that, you're gonna spin those parents up because their expectation is that you're leaving. So they're gonna start getting more anxious and more nervous and there's no eye contact again and no one's talking to them. And that's why we end up in this, in a situation of if that's happened to you twice or three times ever in your career, the next time it's like that post-traumatic issue. You're going to say, shit, next time I go to that scene, I'm, I'm just running. So to undo that damage takes a little bit of practice, takes understanding of kind of a little bit of scripting and what to do when you get there knowing what to do before you get to the scene. And once you've done it once, my God, the whole world will change. And so there could be people listening, guys, who are saying, are you kidding me? I'm never going to do that because of that one time back in 19, 
you know, 95 when I had a horrible experience. Yeah, if you do it wrong, it sucks. It really sucks. But when you do it right, so in the last two weeks, guys, we've had two one-year-old drownings. And boy, I could tell you that I've gotten phone calls and I actually have uh, done the calls with my with my crews afterwards. They call me and they say, Doc, we that was an amazing experience. We are so proud of what we've done. There was no CISM. So when you do make the turn and make the curve and actually get there as an agency, as an individual, you can start talking to families on scene and in the emergency department. It, it literally is going from like going down to hell versus going up to heaven. It's like two different feelings completely. That's a that's a really interesting take. I something that we've we've discussed a lot on the show is, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the stigmatization of things. Where I think that as an industry, we're very good at not having difficult conversations. So we tend to like we don't talk or think about pediatric cardiac arrest. You know, and that's there's there's a whole subculture where uh, in most EMT classes it's classified as special populations. And it tends to be, it's, you know, the pediatric arrests, it's sexual assault, things like that, that we're, we, we find them to be yucky. So we don't, we don't deal with them. And I think that just talking with your partner, whether it's a partner for the day or whoever you've worked with regularly, you know, if we have a pediatric arrest, we're going to do this. And that's the thing we establish, you know, in the field for an adult arrest. Dan, right. if, you, if you and I are going to a job, like on the way there, I'd be like, all right, you've got the airway, I'll, I'll get the meds. And that's, that's hammered out in the meantime, Absolutely. just doing that kind of as the first step. And Dr. Antev, you've talked a lot about cognitive offloading as well. Mm -hmm. I think that those type of steps are, are vitally important. And I think that can help take away from sort of that stigma of, you know, we're sitting on scene, do, you know, doing nothing in air quotes and, you know, people see that the, the ambulance isn't moving. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like how, we can actually use or how we can, I guess, work with our staff to try and, you know, get that, that, that affective donating that we're talking about. How is it, is it just preparation that reduces the anxiety? Is it additional training? Is it open conversation? If I'm running a project and I notice that my pediatric arrest numbers are down mm -hmm. uh, or my, my survivability is down, what's, I guess, what's the most humanistic thing I can do to get my crew to be better at that and then worry about the clinical stuff afterward? Yeah, no. so I think there's a couple of low-hanging fruit, easy steps that everybody should be doing. Number one is, again, go back and look at how many arrests did you run last year over the last two years and see if there's any chance of, of understanding what those outcomes were. And the reason that is is because if I came to your area and I, and I came and I gave a talk and I gave these numbers, you know, 11.4% and 5.3%, if, uh, you know, if you're sitting in that seat, you're probably thinking, nah, here we're probably a little bit better, right? But if I came to you and said, hey, you know, in your neck of the woods at your agency, you've run, I'm just going to make up a number, 50 cardiac arrests, pediatric arrests over the last two years, and none of them have survived. All of a sudden that hits you right in the heart and you're like, what? None of them have, no, none of them have survived. And by the way, I've been to big cities, I'm not going to name them where I've asked them to do this. And after I've left, you know, I came and gave, gave them a talk and half the people in the room were like, oh no, that's not like that here. And then they go look at their data and they email me back. They're like, holy shit, you're hundred <laughs> percent right. Right? Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden that, so that's step one to saying Houston, we have a problem. Okay. Um, and, and then 
what I would say is, and again, I, I'll lean on the medical director here because what I do after every single arrest, pediatric arrest, is I, I listen to the audio and then I will get my crew on the line. Not, not for a debriefing of, you know, how did you feel, none of that. It's let's go through the medical call and let's just kind of, hey, Lieutenant, tell me how it went. Um, and then of course, the whole crew was there, the engine, my battalion, whoever was there. And what happens is you end up going through and they hear themselves saying what they did. Now I'm at the point where we stay. And so now they're kind of, it's like a, it's like a brag fest. And then we did that. And then we did three rounds of epi before we left. But initially they would hear themselves and they would say, yeah, we got there and the, the, the cop just handed us the kid and we just ran. And I said, okay, no problem. Where did you run to? Well, we ran to the back of the truck. Okay. And what'd you do when you get there? Well, actually, uh, you know, we just started driving fast. And then I said, and what happened when you got to the emergency department? Oh, well, they, uh, they put an IO in and they gave Epi and they intubated the kid. And I said, and what else? Uh, and then they called the code after like say 15 minutes. I said, how is that any different than what we, we would have done? And, and all of a sudden they said, you know what? It's not different, right? So it's those conversations with the people at your department that are the leaders who are on the scene, not the, not the ones sitting in the office, with all due respect, it's the ones on scene who used to be banging on the back of the, of the rescue, we call them rescues here, in the back of the rescue saying, go, go, go. I said, no, 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 don't do that anymore. And we had a three-year-old uh, cardiac arrest probably six months ago now, and my fire chief with, you know, got to the scene, he jumps calls all the time. He gets in the front of the ambulance and one of my amazing lieutenants, John Robbins is in the back. And you know, cause they were at the curb, they gave the, but we don't move the wheels, right? And, um, and the chief is like, are we going? And Robbins is like, don't even move. And they sat on scene until everything was done. They got ROSC and then, you know what? Let's start moving now, post ROSC assessment, maybe give some push pressure epi, some IV fluids. But so th those are the two kind of easy steps to start off with before you kind of go into another, you know, kind of more, more uh, education and training. So, so let me break this down because uh, that's some interesting stuff. And, and for any individual clinicians out there, like, you know, up here, we, we ride with two paramedics on a, on a response vehicle. Uh, we get there and we're, we're, we're kind of expected to be those leaders, like that team leader to come in and kind of make sense of things. And, you know, this is really where an individual clinician can make a, can make an impact because you've got this situation. Everybody's hyped up. Everybody's, you know, the anxiety level and the cognitive load is so high. If somebody just has the presence of mind to say, Hey, let's make sure we've got this done before we start moving and you take the time to do it, your outcomes are going to improve because you're making sure you have really good compression. So we're going to get into the basics of this um, and talk more about how we build on this, but making sure that somebody's doing CPR, making sure somebody's maintaining an airway, making sure that we're getting vascular access and we're getting epinephrine on board. And especially in younger kids, you know, the, the data on epinephrine is really good. Um, it's something we should do right away. Um, so That's these right. are things, so I think the, the first thing to say is really just take a breath and slow down, see what's going on and make sure that things are being done well. 
And we do this in adult arrests. When we come on scene, the first thing you're looking at is we're looking at who's doing compressions. Are they doing it well? Are they doing it poorly? If it's mechanical, is it set well or is it not? Do we have a bag valve? Do we have the stuff that we need to do? Is there an airway established? And we do this with adults subconsciously. And, you know, you made the point in the refresh program that, you know, what we do for kids in cardiac arrest is really no different from what we would do for adults. That's right. No, it's exactly the same. And, you know, I love that you just went through that algorithm so smoothly. Um, But in, in kids, if that happens on scene, it's important to take the crew afterwards and just like in, in a hot wash kind of way or with the medical director, um, just to go over it and kind of reinforce that. So just a quick a quick little funny story is that once I went on a retreat where, you know, it's kind of like a, a team building kind of thing. And they made me climb like this really big telephone pole. At the very top of the telephone pole was like a plank of wood. It was about two feet. And there's two people who climb the pole. And then you got to get on the pole and then you have to help the other person get on that plank. And, you know, it's stressful and it's hard and you do it. And then we all get down. You kind of like jump down and there's a cord holding you and everything. And then they sit you in a circle and then they talk you through it. And they say, hey, Pete, how'd that feel? And you, and you talk you talk about it. And, and then afterward, you're like, you know what? I did that and I could do it again. So it's, the, it's like people like you guys who are on the scene who are the, the kind of the voice of reason. You're not talking quickly. You're not speaking loudly. You're doing the right thing. Then you take that younger crew, or, or maybe not even younger, but the, other, the crew who's kind of with you, and you say, that's how we do it. Good job. And, and if they do something a little bit wrong, that's okay. You know what? Awesome job. You know, proud of you guys. And then you get the first save. And then you get the second save. And then, and now you're going. But it doesn't happen in one in one time, but it takes leadership like you just talked about, that is key, really is. Well, and that's the thing. It kind of comes to the old trope, you know, half of success is showing up, right? Just just yep. actually, you know, being there and having an idea of what to do. Um, something I do want to touch on before we move on to the statistics, because you had mentioned working CPRs on scene, and we've talked about it um, at length. I think it's important. Um I, we've all spent our time working urban EMS. Um, I have a bit of a reference. I live in Dade County for a little while. Um, what is your response when people say that you're not moving fast enough or that, you know, in, in, in urban or suburban EMS, you know, it's, it's a mobile intensive care unit. So you've got to move. That's the whole point. So what is your response? Five minutes from the hospital. Five minutes from the hospital. Exactly. Uh, treating, treating the threshold of the emergency department as a magic plane that heals everything. Um, (laughs) What is, uh, what, what's your response when people say that, and aside from the data, you know, that the whole point of pre-hospital EMS is to move quickly and not to sit on the side of the road? Yeah, no, you know, I think that that myth has to be debunked, right? Because I think a lot of people need to understand that, uh, just the data, right? You look at kids who are in cardiac arrest and um, I think, you know, uh, Dan, you had mentioned earlier the, the actual data on it, where if you look at when kids get epinephrine within five minutes, and then you look at their outcomes, like in Polk County, where they're at 35%, whereas American Heart is showing, you know, something like 11.4, but really 5%. And so um, this whole thing about you can do CPR effectively in the back of an ambulance at 60 miles an hour, you can't. I've been there. I've done it. And I haven't done it that well. 
And so what, what ends up happening is, as you guys know, BLS is really the key, right? Basic BLS. So if you're not doing the chest compression correctly, if you're not recoiling completely, and in kids, the biggest mistake people make in kids is that they don't really come off the chest and let that chest recoil. That's when the heart is refilling with blood and we're, we're big people, we're leaning with one hand and all of a sudden you're in the back of an ambulance at 60 miles an hour and you're doing CPR. As you're holding on, you're not doing the basics correctly. Then the airway, which of course is important in kids, you're not tending to that correctly. How many times have you guys been on a scene, and you don't have to admit to this, but I will, that we missed a two minute uh, pulse check or rhythm check. We, we are actually ventilating way too fast. We forgot to put the end title on. Uh, oh my God, end title. Like on the adult, I would never have forgotten that, but on the kid, I did. Um, we got, basically we have PEA on the monitor and you know I'm not sure if I'm feeling a pulse or not. Let me just give another dose of cardiac arrest dose epi. Boom, now that kid goes back into cardiac arrest again. So there's so many things you're gonna do wrong when you're driving 60 miles an hour that you really have to, you know, kind of undo all those myths and just do it the right way. So Dan, let's, uh, let's go ahead and start getting into the stats here. Um, there was uh, some time ago where there were studies that came out that said that epinephrine essentially uh, doesn't improve survivability in cardiac arrest. Um, we've talked about the paramedic two trial at length. And uh, now there seems to be some data that says that maybe epinephrine works. Um, we talked about early epinephrine. So Dan, you saw the presentation. Um, what are some of your, what are the things that you wanted to clarify between the current data and old data? Well, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, first of all, we know, you know, we've talked about paramedic too. And, um, you know, epi does give you ROSC and we can't have survival unless you have ROSC. So there's a thing. Um, neurologically intact survival was a different, uh, issue on that study, but, um, doc, you know what, there was a big flaw in that study. And there was a big problem with that study that a lot of people didn't pay attention to. Um, can you kind of explain that out and why we need to be thinking about this earlier rather than later? Absolutely. So in, in Paramedic 2, as many people know, was a study down out of the UK. It was published in the New England Journal in August of 2018, so almost three years ago. And they had 8,000 cardiac arrest victims, all adult. And they, they, they put them, it was, you know, it was a randomized trial, which is an RCT, which is a great type of trial to have. And the medics didn't know, the patients didn't know, the doctors in the ED didn't know, because it all looked like the Bristol Jet of Epi except that 4,000 of those patients got a normal saline syringe, even though, again, it looked like an epi syringe, and the other 4,000 actually got a milligram of epi. And they looked at survival to the hospital, right, which is that first kind of survival point, did they get ROSC? And lo and behold, it was threefold. If you got epi, you had 24% chance of getting ROSC, but in the placebo group, only 8%. So if you stop there, as we talked about earlier, you, you now kind of uh, are lulled into sleep thinking that, oh wow, epi, epi is great. But then when you look at the neuro-intact survival, so a normal CPC one or two score, like we talked about, it turns out there was no difference between the groups. 2.2% in the epi group, neuro-intact survival, versus 1.9% in the placebo group for neuro-intact survival. So then people said, wow, 
That's amazing. That shows that Epi is worthless, right? Because the placebo group, they're just as good as the Epi group. So therefore we should throw Epi out, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But when you look at the details, the time to epinephrine from the moment the patient fell over was 21 and a half minutes. Then if you look at from the moment that the crew got on scene to Epi, it was 16 and a half minutes. And that number, 16 and a half minutes, may seem like, oh my God, who's waiting 16 and a half minutes? But it turns out, if you're not training on it and you're not paying close attention to it, it turns out that most crews are at 16 and a half minutes on average. And studies going back 20 years, and even the ALPS trial showed 16 and a half minutes is the number. So in, in the adult population, if you're giving epi that much later, you're basically resuscitating a brick at this point, right? Because the patient hasn't had good uh, uh, bystander CPR and the epi came on too late. We now know that thanks to people like uh, Dr. Paul Banerjee in Polk County, that early epi works. And there's a lot of data on that, by the way. There's data from people like Danino, who basically show on in-hospital studies that the earlier you give epi, the better the survival, and it's, it's literally linear. It's linear. So if you give epi at minute one, they do better. Minute two, they do a little worse. Minute three, and by the time you get to minute 10, you, you essentially don't have a survivor anymore. So um, this, is almost, this is almost like the defibrillation curve. It is. The earlier, earlier yeah. we shot somebody the better outcome if you wait 10 minutes to get the defibrillator on you're, you're gonna you're not gonna be helping anything it, it's exactly the same curve i mean the numbers are a little bit different but it's essentially uh we always say for for the people who don't know that that it's it's the it's the curve that says for every minute you delay shocking someone in vfib there's a 10 percent reduction in their outcome so you know 10 minutes zero percent same thing with epinephrine it's about um, 9% for every minute that you miss. And so what if we had great bystander, great telephone CPR, and then we had an EMS system that worked the kid right where they got, when, when they got there, they gave, you know, gave nice, good breaths, started good chest compressions, drilled ephemeral IO, gave the right dose of epinephrine within five minutes of arrival. That's the metric, in my opinion, that we should be looking for. And it's basically... You know, it, it's an honest five minutes, meaning that I know how it goes. You're on scene and you end up charting two hours later. And, and the charting is, hey, when did we get there? 12 o'clock. When did we leave? 1220. All right. So when was the first epi dose? 1203. 1203. Right. So if you're a system who's putting in those numbers because you know that the medical director is looking at it, well, then you probably never know the truth. Uh, <laughs> all, all times approximate on the chart. You want to make sure uh, <laughs> Listen, I've been in EMS for 11 years now. I know all the tricks. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting point too, because something that I've gotten kind of more interested in as the years have gone by is uh, just the concept of time dilation as it relates to stress, where when you're in significant you know, periods of distress or eustress, time seems to slow down. It's why people say like, you know, their wedding night was a very long night. It's because they were happy, so it lasts a long time. Similarly, when you're in a cardiac arrest scenario, you might think that time is moving either faster or slower, depending on, on how you react to it. So I think that just the idea of training and trying to tell people, like, when you're going to, you know it's a confirmed pediatric arrest. 
just talking like we're getting in airway io epi like just like those are the first three things and then we'll do cpr and everything else is negotiable i think just having that that kind of game plan in your mind so that you're not sitting at the bag just being like well do i need a size one or a size two eye gel and then do i use blue or the pink like just you're we're going to do this 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 and it's it is kind of canned um it is and and i think that some people might be resistant to that because it's it's someone telling you what to do as opposed to you thinking as a clinic as a clinician um but you know, in cardiac arrest, we're doing the same thing every time. So there's nothing wrong with having like your first five things and every cardiac arrest are going to be A, B, C, D. It, it has to be canned. You know, it has to, it has to be canned. If it's not canned, you're screwed, right? At the end of the day. And so j- just to kind of uh, give you a little bit of more color of, of what my marker is for great resuscitation. So we, we, we take out the, the, um, the epi, we open the box, we put it together and then we draw up three syringes. So let's say if it's a 10, a 10 kilo kid, a one-year-old, it's one ml. So we take three one ml syringes and we go boom, boom, boom. We fill, fill, fill. It takes about, if, if you know what you're doing, it takes about 15 seconds. And there's some little tricks on how to do that. You take those three syringes and you actually put them back into the epi box, right? And then you lay it right next to the kid's IO. And anyone can come around. It could be position four, five, six, and seven, now walk up, and now they see, oh, there's only two epis left. Hey, when's the next epi due? Hey, it's at about a minute and a half. Stay right there, do that. And then the second epi goes in again. Great BLS care, someone's talking to the family, we're leaving in a few minutes. Once the third epi goes in, that's my green light for like the ultimate stay. Now, are there agencies that that say, you know what, Pete and Tevi, we're gonna stay longer. And there are, and there are, and, you know, Bend, Oregon is one of my favorite, you know, places. They stayed recently for 40 minutes, 40 on minutes. Yeah. 40 minutes. Yeah. So, so imagine the mentality of those, of that crew, they knew they weren't going to leave before they got there. And their metric for, for getting this kid, uh, for leaving was ROSC, no matter what. And so th- that, in my opinion, is the Holy grail where they're so committed to staying on scene and they know the outcome is going to be poor if they just rush. And lo and behold, this kid was getting CPR for 40 minutes and she made a perfectly 100% neurologically normal outcome. Beautiful eight-year-old girl, blue eyes, back home with mom and dad. She ended up having Brugada, uh, you know, kind of a channelopathy type of thing. Okay. Um, but you know what? In any other city in America, perhaps, this kid would have been another statistic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about that sweet spot, Doc, because you're it seems to be that that 15 to 20 minutes is a real point at which you can really affect some positive change. And it, and it seems that the science seems to back this up, right? 100 percent. It backs it up. And I, I will tell everyone listening that if you're on scene and you're doing great CPR, like the BLS part of your CPR is just unmatched. Right. You're not hyperventilating. Your chest compressions are perfect. Your rate is perfect. Your chest compression fraction is perfect. You're doing all the right things, right? If you don't get those kids back after the third dose of epi, then, I mean, and I'll take you to dinner, right? That if you do it right for three doses and then you somehow transport and then the kid ends up getting uh, ROSC on dose number eight and, and, and is neurologically normal, I'll buy you dinner. More than likely, those, those kids are going to end up um, you know, not having a good outcome if you rush. Okay, that's that's going to be this just the bottom line, and, and I will buy the dinner. 
So I think, you know, this is something that we're, we're more than happy to, to talk about forever. It's a, it's a data point that's going to become it's kind of existing all the time. Whether you're in an adult or a pediatric population, it, it kind of just stands to reason that you have to work the code on scene. Like the, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable saying that the data is more or less out on that. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of where we're at with that. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, this is this is something, again, if you're a paramedic or a team leader out in the field as an EMS clinician, you got to take a breath. We have to do the things we have to do. Driving driving the kid to the hospital is not going to improve the outcome. What's going to improve the outcome? Good CPR, good airway management, getting that IO in place and getting Epi on board. And, you know, the studies show this, um, you know, we all don't have to read these things religiously, but you got to understand that this is what the science is telling us. Um, you know, so what, you know, what, what's been discussed, what we're being discussed here is a couple of really important points. First thing is, you know, EMTs, the, the, the EM, the, the basic providers, quote unquote, basic, I hate that term, um, you guys own this. CPR is what's going to save lives. And you guys, and the performance of your CPR is a real big indicator and impact on whether that person's going to survive neurologically well or not. Um, you need to own that. Um, well, and we sort of know that, right? We know that the only way that we get decent outcomes in cardiac arrest, whether it's adult or pediatric, is that we start it early. You know, it's part of the reason why like getting bystanders to learn CPR is the most important thing that you can do. So, and I think there's, there's a value to talk about like community outreach. Like, you know, Dan, you and I are in a metropolitan, a, a megalopolis type of area where helping your fellow man is not exactly the, the, the best, the biggest thing people do. Um, you know, there's, and, and well, Dr. Dr. Antemi in Florida, you know, there's, you know, I, I used to live in a town called Pembroke Pines and that it's a very, you know, suburban neighborhood with plenty of friendly people. But, you know, I, I tend to think that if I drove down the highway to Miami, I might be less inclined to find people willing to do bystander CPR. You know, right. so is, is there is there a way that as a community, we can get the message out? Like we, we already have the early CPR message out, right? So we still have work to do with that, but how, how can we expand on that and try to convince people to do CPR on children uh, that perhaps they've never met or don't know? So it turns out that the, the easiest and fastest way to get to there is by walking into dispatch and I'll, I'll give anyone the entire program. We have the, the entire kind of like the entire day that we go through with them and we teach them exactly why they have to get the people on the other end of the call to start CPR. And it's very, very basic. Um, the harder pull is to go out and say, okay, citizens of, of Broward County or, you know, wherever your community is, you know, we would really love you to do this. Now in Seattle, they do this really well. Why? Because it's a, it's a culture thing. It's a community Seattle, thing. Seattle does everything well. Uh, it's, right. Like, but they, I, I will live. I Listen, I am New Jersey, ride or die, but God, that, that's <laughs> right. Well, so listen, so the state of Florida could have had an opportunity to recommend or mandate CPR training before you graduate high school. Um, you know, we're, we're still not on that list, whereas I think you can start at nine or 10 years of age, and they do that very well in Seattle. So um, I listen, 
the bystander piece is important. That that takes legislation. It takes schools to get involved. But the easier thing is that a single person can walk in, set a meeting with your dispatchers and your, your telecommunicators and say, this is why doing CPR and getting cancer chest on soon and fast is, is important. And if you, and if, again, that's another great data point. So if you're listening to this today, you can walk into dispatch and say, hey, the next 10 cardiac arrests, I want to do, I want to get two times. Number one, when did we recognize arrest? And that should happen in 60 seconds. When did we put hands on chest? That should happen within two minutes. And I'll guarantee you that if you haven't you know, gone into dispatch to talk about this, it's going to be somewhere in the four to five minute range. And so if you can just shorten that time from five minutes down to two minutes, and if you can do it even less than two minutes, which is hard, all of a sudden your survival goes up significantly. So the, that's the lowest hanging fruit there is today, be, you know, besides being a great EMS professional and kicking ass on scene. This is a really, I, this I found very interesting. And, you know, it's nice that if everybody in the world carried a CPR card, but we know that just getting hands on a chest and just doing compressions will make a difference. Um, talk more about this, the dispatcher aided CPR, the telephone CPR. It's, it's not something anybody with, you can literally get anybody and talk them into doing chest compressions. You just have to reassure them. You have to tell them that they need to do this and, you know, talk about the no, no go algorithm and how easy it is to implement at your dispatch center. Yeah. So there are a couple barriers that you're alluding to that have to be overcome when you're on the phone trying to figure out is someone dead, number one, and B, should I go to the next step and have someone actually push on that person's chest? And the barriers are as follows. The person at, 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 at the communication center is wondering, am I going to hurt this person? You have, to, you have to kind of go in there and make them understand that if, let's say, the next 10 people seem like they're cardiac, in cardiac arrest, but you were wrong and you, were pushing on their, you had someone push on their chest, it's still okay. Nothing, they, they may have some bruised ribs. They may be upset with you. They'll get over it. Okay. Well, let's also reference people were worried about hurting a patient who's in cardiac arrest. So just take a second. You're like, what are you going to, what is it you're going to do to them? Exactly. Correct. <laughs> how, how could you possibly make this worse? Correct. Exactly. And you know what? I've spoken to those people and I say, hey, after you left the hospital, your chest hurt? And like, yeah. How long did it hurt for? A month. Great. Right. I bet so, it, it hurt the next month you were alive. I bet it Correct. Did. Correct. <laughs> So for, for kids, the additional barrier is that oftentimes the call's coming in and you don't really hear because the parents are screaming. They oftentimes will say it was a seizure and um, the, the person on the other end of the call will say, ah, seizure. Okay, that does not require chest compressions. But as soon as you hear unconscious, not breathing normally, that's the first no, okay? Um, so, you know... Are they awake? Can you wake them up? Okay, that's number one, no. Um, are they breathing normally? No. So once you get to those two things, which should take about 10 seconds, then it's go. So here's the problem with that. You have to, you know, you have to get all the information out first, right? Um, who are you? What's your phone number? They repeat it. What's the address? They repeat it. And now you're getting all that information. If you're a secondary PSAP, then you, you, you probably lost a good 30, 30 seconds to 60 seconds prior to that. Um, 
And so if you really time out what's going on, getting that, okay, we're going to get them flat on their back on a hard service and we're going to start doing chest compressions. If you start to say things like, well, um, excuse me, ma'am, do you know how to do CPR? Have you ever done CPR before? All of a sudden, you have the wrong tone. You have to be very directive in how you speak. We're going to get them flat on their back. We're going to start CPR. You're going to follow my instructions. X, Y, Z. One, two, three, and you're going to go down the line. So, so that, that, that's the first, like the no-no-go should be done everywhere, like tomorrow. In, Absolutely. Yeah. Now in kids, in kids, here, here's the big problem is that you often hear someone start CPR nicely when you listen to the audio and then the parent will typically start to provide some sort of feedback. And the feedback is something like, oh, wait, 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 I see some mucus coming out of their nose now. The, the, the telecommunicator now starts to revert back to old habits and they say, oh, okay, um, are they turning pink now? Um, are they breathing on their own? Um, hey, do you have that blue bulb suction from the hospital they gave you? Let's go and suction it. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, no. So the rule is when, you, when you're at go, you don't stop. I don't care if, I don't care what's happening. They, they, they think they feel a pulse, continue on. We are terrible. Clinicians in the field are terrible. Like, did we lose pulses? Does he have a pulse? I don't know. You know, do we have heart tones? Do we have that? Like, listen, it, it, it changed. It changes practice when you just say, look, if I can't feel something or I'm not sure we're doing compressions, that's it. And the same thing has to be here. The whole thing that happens with, I think with any cardiac arrest, but especially with pediatric cardiac arrest is as a provider, I, I think, and, and Dr. Antevi, you can correct me on this. I think you have to become square with sometimes bad shit happens and it is, horribly unfortunate that we are in a scenario where there is a child whose heart has stopped and it's now our job to press on it. That's awful. There is no, yeah. there's not enough words in the English vocabulary to describe how terrible of an experience that is. That said, push on their chest for a while. Like it's like, yes, it's all horrible. It's all really sad. Now I need you to do the thing. Right. And listen, if you're at that point and you're the first person there and you're pushing on someone's chest, like the way that my, and I, I'm paraphrasing because they're, they're not here to speak for themselves, is they feel now that they can get any kid back to life because they know it, they've done it, we have the data to prove it. So like now they feel like they want to be there. They want to be the ones on scene rather than, oh my God, it's a kid and how sad and oh my God, like now they've seen the outcomes We've had the reunions, we've seen the smiles, we've seen the families not get divorced anymore. And it really is like, it's really a mind, it's all a mind shift. This is completely 100% a mind shift. And I think that, you know, conversations like these, I, I hope will change your mind. But I think that just stick to the dispatch thing for a second. Everyone on this call, when you run a cardiac arrest, demand to listen to the audio. Right. And I'll tell you why that's important. You know, we had a kid, a two year old kid who ended up having uh, long QT. Okay. Um, two year old kid was visiting from out of town. Mom puts him on the, on, on the, she says on the potty. And as soon as he pushed to make, he made a Valsalva, he extended his QT interval. He had an RNT phenomenon. Now he's in fib. He's in cardiac arrest. Okay. And you know we end up we end up getting there, 
And right in the bathroom, literally like maybe right room, just right outside the bathroom door, we worked this kid. Within two minutes, we got a shockable rhythm, shocked this kid, we got Ross, like boom, amazing, right? So everything seemed to be done perfectly well, except that his outcome wasn't good because he herniated 36 hours later. When we listened to the audio, we heard a lot of screaming. We heard a call taker who didn't give one instruction on one chest compression. So this kid for essentially eight, nine, maybe 10 minutes had zero chest compressions. Imagine if that kid would have had at least another couple of minutes. One chest compression. One, something, one. move something, sure. get, get the perfume. So here's why it's important if you're, uh, if you're that person on the scene is because when they heard the audio, they said, you know what? This kid didn't have a chance. And now they start to understand, hey, wait a minute. I wanna hear that audio. And then dispatch, you, you, you're now holding hands with dispatch saying, we trust you, we believe in you. And here's why, talk to any dispatcher. They're experts at listening to the tone of the medic on the radio. So when the dispatcher says, you're being toned out to cardiac arrest, and then they get there and it was a seizure, guess what the medic says you know, on the radio? Not a cardiac arrest. Yeah, that, that wasn't a cardiac arrest, right? And they kind of say it in that tone like you would talk to your, you know, to your three-year-old. And so we have to, we had to undo that part too. So what did we do? We had our medics sit in dispatch mm-hmm. and, and listen to the call side by side. And then all of a sudden, and we start to link in dispatch and we have our cardiac arrest survivors who's in the, in the audience and who's coming up on stage along with the crew, the dispatcher, right? So it's a good point. There, 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 there are a lot of little like low hanging fruit here that, that are very, very important. And, but none of them, by the way, and I hate to say it cause I'm, you know, I work in a hospital, but not, none of these relate to in hospital care because none of this matters unless you bring me a viable kid, viable meaning a neurologically viable kid. Cause I'll bet you that I can get a pulse back on a rock, right? Bet and you. That's, and that's kind of the point though, is that this is pediatric patients tend to be a population that we have the chance to have a very good outcome with, right? We know that if, if compression start early, and that's always been the case, even with the new data that's out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, back back when my father was in medic school in whatever, I think the 80s, that was their thing. It's like you do CPR on kids. Um, you know, I think that as a as a culture, we tend to hear cardiac arrest, and we call kind kind of tend to roll, roll our eyes because mathematically, if you're going to a cardiac arrest, it's probably an old person, it's probably going to be a pronouncement, and it's probably an easy chart. Um, right. And I think on the flip side, we all tend to kind of want to stray away from difficult charts as cardiac arrests uh, tend to be. Um, but as I said, this is, it's a population that we can actually change patient outcomes and you know demographics of the world, frankly, moving forward. Um, and it's just not something that we do. Um, I do want to ask, because we're coming up on a hard out, but I want to get, um, I wanted to try and uh, kind of invoke uh, Dr. Slovis a little bit here. Give me your, uh, your top five I guess, things to know about the 2020 PALS update, whether they're good or bad, what you would or would not change. Yeah. Uh, good or bad is relative. It, it, like, right. I, I understand like they're, they're fine. But. Yeah, no. Well, listen, for, first I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, I give all the people who are on the, on the guidelines um, and, and working hard a lot of credit because, you know, they, it is a lot of work, right? Absolutely. Um, not, no small undertaking, right. not, a, not an easy task. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. 
Right. Like that's, it, that's not what we're trying to say. It's just as, as with, as with all guidelines that come out, they're always guidelines and the, the published data tends to be behind the actual data. So that's, but if you've gotten, if you've gone through pals in 2020, this little, little grains of salt, we'll call them. Yeah. <laughs> and heavy grains of salt. Right. So listen, and I, I will say to you that, you know, um, it, what I learned a long time ago is, is that just because they're published in a journal and their guidelines, you have to look under the hood. So let's take a look under the hood here for the, for the PALS guidelines, and we'll, we'll give you the top five. Number one, and maybe the most important one is the change from 10 breaths per minute for kids in cardiac arrest to 20 to 30 breaths per minute. So it's a doubling and a tripling of the ventilation rate, which I think is deadly. And here's why. When you're overventilating somebody, you're not just kind of causing an increased pressure in the chest that's going to squeeze down the RV, that's going to limit cardiac output. That's, that's, that's kind of the basics of, of why putting too much positive pressure is bad. But what's very important is that you're minimizing flow from the brain back into the heart. And if, you, if you're not draining the brain, then when you push on the chest, you're not perfusing the brain. And your perfusion pressure goes way down. Um, I should say that the actual pressure in the brain um, is going up because you're not letting the brain drain of blood. So that ventilation rate may increase your oxygenation, but it surely won't bring more kids back to life. And if you want to, you know, just 30 seconds into the article that they published this on, that they based it on, was an ICU study, 47 patients. It was observational in nature. 60% of those children had congenital heart disease. All of them were intubated. All of them had arterial lines. All of them had fluid, their fluids maximized. Okay. Is this any patient we've ever seen? No. And then what was their presenting rhythm? 74% of the cases had a presenting rhythm of bradycardia with poor perfusion. So, and all the kids in the study that had asystole PEA, every one of them died. So to take a study that, that was not our patient population and then to lean it over and lay it over EMS is wrong. And ILCOR, so the rest of the world, kind of the international guideline folks, did not move to 20 to 30. And so I did push on the AHA to say, please, before you make that type of change, give us better data. So that's, that's kind of the big one for me. Um, the, the second one, let's go to number two, is a symptomatic bradycardia algorithm, where for years, I was against it, where they have a cardiac arrest dose of epi for children who have bradycardia, who are symptomatic. So let me just kind of take 30 seconds to explain that. A child has a heart rate under 60, but they're altered. You're doing CPR on them, and, but there's still a pulse but it's, it's not a fast pulse, and they want you to give a cardiac arrest dose, so 0.01 milligrams per kilogram of epi 1 in 10,000, full dose of cardiac arrest epi to a kid like that. A study comes out in 2019 by Holmberg where he has almost 7,000 patients, not 47, beautifully done study, and overwhelmingly they said giving cardiac arrest epi to kids with symptomatic bradycardia is deadly, okay? Instead, we should be giving an epi drip or push presser epi, something like a, some, a softer form of epi. No, it's not not to give epi at all. The, the guidelines saw that article. It was, it was in resuscitation in, this, in 2019. And they said, not good enough. We're going to wait. They took a 47-patient observational study and made a drastic ventilation change. 7,000, 
almost 7,000 patients for symptomatic bradycardia did not make the change. The data is still out on the, uh, the 7,000. Data is still out, right. So uh, needless to say, I made that change in my protocols the day that, uh, or the year that protocol came out. So in 2019, we've been doing, uh, we've taken that out of our protocol. Um, the, the third big oopsie is the fluid management. In 2015, I called the guide, guidelines out because based on a study done in Africa on kids with malaria, they said, maybe you should consider giving fluids to kids in shock, uh, not in compensated shock, in you know, decompensated shock, consider giving fluids. Why? Because the study done in, you know, uh, by someone in Africa, actually she was a very, very uh, good researcher, but it was in kids with malaria, which we don't see here, different physiology. These were kids with severe anemia, like you know, hemoglobin of five, um, and then these kids did not have any ventilators. They did not have an ICU. Does that sound like anything we do here in America? No, but instead they took that principle. So now in the 2020 guidelines, they said, we're now just now going to reconsider that recommendation we made. So you, you, you could see the, the problem when they make such a, when they make such a mistake, it takes them years. It's like the Titanic, right? It's, a, it's a, it was such a big ship. You can't navigate it so well. So that's the third, that's the third big one. Um, the, the fourth one, which is, you know, kind of less of an issue for me, but it, it's really like just the basic BLS airway stuff where they have the CE clamp. Well, the, the, the C on your fingers, if you're pushing on the submandibular soft tissue, you're closing off the airway. So we kind of make it a VE with a, where that, that, that V between your thumb and your, and your index finger are at the top of the bag so that you're not pushing underneath there. Um, and then I'm a big believer in the eye gel or in the superglottic airway, King LT, whatever you want to use. Uh, so it's bag, 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 put an eye gel in, upgrade if you have to, to an endotracheal tube. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, of that superglottic. And then the fifth, number five, just to kind of round it off, is the blood. So in trauma, they say give component therapy, meaning you have a separate bag for PRBCs, which is just the red blood cells, then platelets, and then fresh frozen plasma. There's no EMS system in the world that can carry component therapy. We, in Broward County, where you used to live, we now have whole blood, and we give it from cradle to grave. So if you have a trauma right now in Broward County, we'll get the helicopter in, thanks to Broward Sheriff's Office, a great agency, and they will drop the, the bird, and we'll give you whole blood. Now, there's not enough data for the guidelines to have said that yet, but here we are in March 2021. I'll guarantee you in the next, hopefully in the next couple of years, but probably five years, <laughs> the guidelines will finally say, let's start giving whole blood. So uh, th those are my top five. The rest of it, I think, is great. I don't want to, again, uh, people who know me know that I'm all about the patient. I'm not about an ego. And if the guidelines wants to come to me and say, hey, you're wrong, Let's have a conversation. That is, there's so much that we talked about today. Um, everyone listening, please take some time to go back over it. There's a lot of information to unpack. A um, lot of things that we can do and change with pediatric arrest. Um, we'll put all of Dr. Antevi's information in the show notes. Um, so Dr. Antevi, thanks for coming back on the show. We appreciate it. No, no, guys, thanks so much. And uh, just so you know, that 90-minute that, uh, webinar on the guidelines is not going to be um, open. Uh, we're going to kind of blast it out. 
If anybody wants it, they can, I guess, contact you guys. We can give you the link as well. I really want to push on everybody. Don't take my word for it. Just like you guys do, go look at the papers, open the guidelines, sit with your medical director, and you're going to have to make some tough decisions, basically. But you got to do the work, understand the data. It's sitting there right in front of you. We've put it all in a nice webinar. But please, don't just take what they're telling you um, as the gospel, because as you guys started off by saying, these are guidelines. They're not gospel. Yeah. No, I will absolutely link to that in the show notes. Okay. Um, so thanks again, Doc. Awesome. Thank you, guys.